Hi everyone, this is Garrett Marquis, Global Head of External Communications here at BNY Mellon. Welcome back for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast. We've got a really exciting, unique conversation today for any sports fan out there. Our Chief Investment Officer, Jason Granite, sits down with J.J. Redick. As some of you may know, J.J. had an illustrious career in the NBA. In 2006, he was selected 11th overall player in the NBA draft. For the next 15 years, he played for six different teams in the league and won multiple awards before retiring this past September. During his time in the NBA, J.J. also launched a podcast, The Old Man and the Three, and co-founded his own media company, 342 Productions. Most recently, he announced that he would be joining ESPN as an on-air sports analyst. JJ shares some of his stories from the arena and views on the future of the basketball industry. But he and Jason also focus on the resiliency and adaptability it takes to get to the top of any industry. This message, of course, resonates far beyond the sports world. Here at BNY Mellon, resiliency is a large part of our philosophy and our approach to supporting global markets. They also talk about leadership, mentorship, and role models JJ encountered as he grew up on the court. And with JJ taking the next chapter in his career as an entrepreneur, he takes listeners through his journey, describing opportunities that have surfaced thanks to his role in the NBA, his desire to shape his own narrative, and sports industry insights for the business world. So please, enjoy this latest episode. And even if you've never watched a basketball game, it really has something for everyone. As always, please listen, rate, and review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. All right, JJ, thrilled to have you uh, on this episode of uh, BNY Mellon Perspectives. You just uh, made a quite a big announcement after a, a phenomenal career in so many respects. High school standout, uh, Duke standout, National Player of the Year, uh, 15-year wonderful NBA career, sharpshooter extraordinaire. Um, but why don't we give the listeners a little background on on where you're from, who you are. Take me back on what was in the uh, the original engine room uh, <laughs> that got you going uh, growing up and and kind of, you know, really in love with that uh, that Spalding sphere. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure to talk with you uh, and a pleasure to be on this podcast. So thank you. I, um, I'm the middle of five kids and we grew up in Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. And my parents homeschooled my older sisters and myself. And about the time my sisters were 11 or 12, they started getting into things. Um, first, they were, they were equestrian riders. So they, they competed in horseback riding. So I learned how to ride a horse. Then they started playing softball. So I started playing t-ball and baseball. And then they grew to about six feet. And I just wanted to do everything they wanted to do. So my dad put up a hoop in our backyard when, when we moved to Roanoke. And I started playing basketball in the backyard with them. And because I was homeschooling at the time, and because I was naturally sort of a self-motivated, autonomous person, I would finish my schoolwork by 11 or 11.30. And I would just go play basketball by myself. Or I'd go throw a baseball against the side of the garage by myself. And there was something that was so addicting to me about shooting a basketball and watching it go through the net. It was something I could do alone. It was something that for three decades, basically, I worked at trying to master. And that routine and that autonomy of shooting in my backyard really set the table for everything else I was able to do in my basketball career. But it all started in that backyard. And I like to describe this backyard, by the way. It was uneven. 
It was a third dirt, a third gravel, and a third grass. In the right corner, uh, there was the, the a well, a little well sticking out of the ground about two feet. And then the left corner, there was this tree branch hanging over. So you had to put a little extra arc on it from the left branch, from the from the left side of the court. So it wasn't it wasn't you know your your typical paved uh, blacktop uh, basketball upbringing. It was I was literally shooting on a dirt a dirt patch. <laughs> Shades of uh, shades of Larry Burden in Indiana. I'm hearing there. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So, look, one of the things I feel that's very, very underappreciated on professional athletes is that you have so many fans, so many people watching, claiming they can do that, they can do that. But really, you guys are the top one percent of the one percent that whatever it is that you're doing for you, it's it's shooting a basketball and 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 playing hoops. And so that sustained, tremendous excellence is something that just fascinates me. And it shows up in business worlds and other places, but like there's so much just just critical difference that you have to be amongst so many other people. And so you're out in the backyard, obviously doing that for years and years and years. When when did the switch flip and when did you realize that you had something that was exceptional relative to others was it did someone tell you did you realize it in some you know big games in high school when when did that feel that you could now make it in a way that was unique relative to society yeah it's a great question first of all to your first point about us basically being that much better than the general population at basketball i, I would have to agree with that brian scalabrini has this great quote there was a, a a random person off the street who was trashing you know talking trash to him telling him he could beat him. And Brian's quote was, I'm closer to LeBron than you are to me. And <laughs> That's so, great. <laughs> yeah. When you get, yeah. when you get to our level, uh, you're, you're talking about hours and hours and, and millions really of, of repetitions and work uh, at, at something. I probably realized that I was going to be a good basketball player in eighth grade. And a couple things happened there. Uh, number one, the summer between seventh and eighth grade, I broke my wrist. As soon as I got my cast, cast off, I broke my opposite wrist, wrist was, which was my left wrist. And for about two and a half months, I could only shoot a basketball with one hand. And instead of like so many 13-year-olds who use their left hand and they're, they're, it's all on the shot, I would sit uh, two, three, two feet out, three feet out, five feet out, whatever it was, and I would shoot one-handed over and over again. Eventually that wrist, because again, I was coming off a broken wrist, eventually that wrist got strong enough I could make my way out to eight feet, 10 feet, 12 feet. Then I started shooting free throws. And then I eventually made it out in those two months to where I could shoot a one-handed set shot three-pointer. So when I got my cast off of my left, left wrist, I was now able to shoot with my left hand being a guide hand. That really set the foundation. I, was, I could shoot it before, but in terms of becoming a great shooter, those, those wrist breaks really, really helped me. Second thing that happened that year was I grew about uh, eight or nine inches. So I was five, six to start seventh grade. And I was about six, two, six, three to start eighth grade. And it always helps in basketball. Yes. And it helps to be tall. I was very lucky to have tall parents. Um, so I, I realized I was good. At, I, I started uh, as an eighth grader on our JV team. I was our team's leading scorer. I played AU that summer. There was a sp specific moment that I remember. My AU team went to the Nationals in July in Orlando. Um, this is the summer before my ninth grade. And we played uh, pretty well. And we ended up going into this consolation tournament where we had to win like 10 games over the course of four or five days. 
uh, to win this consolation tournament. And we played a team in New Orleans in the consolation championship. I probably had 35 or 30, 35. I remember every stat from every game, but I had 35 points and we win the championship. And it was one of those days where you're just making everything. And my mother came over to me after the game and she says to me, you're going to do it. And I looked at her. I said, well, I'm going to do what? What are you talking about? And she said, you're going to play at Duke. She knew from the time I was eight years old that I was a Duke fan. And my mother was very empowering to me. She instilled a real sense of confidence and, and healthy ego in me. And that whole year, going through those broken wrists, getting to that point at the end of the eighth grade where you're one of the best players in the country at that point, that's what sort of gave me the confidence. And that's what made me realize, okay, I can play high, high D1 basketball. I would not have predicted at that point in time that I'd have a 15-year NBA career, though. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think, you know, I, you know, that's the type of career that, uh, you know, is a very rare event. So I, I can imagine that. Um, look, one of the priorities in our business and our firm is resiliency. Things happen in markets. Uh, things happen with clients. Uh, you know, we have to be resilient. We have to adapt. So now you're, you're, you're finishing eighth grade. You're, you know, putting up 35 in Orlando, a little foreshadowing there to, to other things that might have happened in Orlando. Um, and, uh you know, were there any were there any bumps? Uh, not not were there any. I know there were bumps between there and 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 your time at Duke and otherwise. Talk to me about how you respond to situations. What resiliency looks like for for a professional high performing athlete? I know what it looks like on Wall Street, but what does it look like? You know, in in your sphere, I, I would say it's no different. Uh, there's always bumps in the road. I left a, an important part of the story out. Uh, my eighth grade year, so. I break my wrist at the AAU Nationals in summer before eighth grade. About a week after I got my cast off, I break my right wrist. I learn how to shoot one-handed. I start on JV that whole season with two games to go. I get undercut for the third time in six months playing basketball, and I land on my right wrist and break it again. So I have three wrist breaks in six months, all playing basketball. And every time that I had broken my wrist, I would stay home from school the next day. I was down. I, I, I was in a lot of pain. So that day I stayed home from school. This was February of, eighth, of my eighth grade year. I stayed home from school that day. And I told my mother in the morning, I said, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. I don't know that this, this is really worth it. This, this keeps happening. And my dad came home from work. We were not particularly well off. There was no like extra discretionary spending money. But he came home from work that day and he handed me a Nike Duke shirt. He knew it was my dream to play at Duke, just like my mom did. He handed me that shirt. He didn't say, you got to keep playing. He just handed me that shirt. It, 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 it gave me some perspective. That was the moment where I, I, I gained a little bit of perspective on bumps in the road. And if you really want to achieve something at a high level, you have to be able to push through those obstacles. There were moments at Duke where I wanted to quit. <laughs> There were moments early on in my NBA career where I, I didn't think that I was going to make it in the league. I always go back to my routine and my work. And so it doesn't matter if I'm preparing for a podcast, preparing for a public speaking event, or going to play an NBA game. I always felt like I was going to be prepared because I had the routine and I had the work down. And so those those blips, those 0 for 12 shoot, well, not maybe 0 for 12, but those 1 for 10 shooting nights, those 
<laughs> zero for five from three shooting nights. I was always able to bounce back from that because I had that perspective and I, and I had that confidence in my routine, in the work that I was doing when the lights weren't on. And that's something that I've tried to pass on to every young guy I've come across over my last four or five, my last four or five years in the NBA is just developing a routine. That's where your confidence comes from. That's where your resiliency comes from. Hey, look, you, uh, you, you started to touch on, you know, your leadership role in the NBA over the last couple of years. And you've played with some of the, the brightest young stars in the game over your, over your last few years. But, but let's go kind of earlier in your career. Um, at Duke, I want to talk about leaders you've played from some of the, the most legendary college coach, uh, arguably the side of John Wooden. Um, uh, you, you played for some wonderful uh, NBA coaches, you know, very renowned coaches. But talk about, I want to talk about leadership in a couple different, uh, you know, angles, but let, let's talk about coaches. Um, you know, obviously you get to Duke, you're, you're, you're playing for one of the best. Um, you, give me a little bit of his style and talk about some of the other things from from some of your other NBA coaches that got you to the point where later in your career you could you could be the person that teams brought in to specifically help the team help the younger guys etc yeah coach k any good thing that's ever been said about him is 100% true he's as good as it gets um he i, I still remember junior year senior year literally pinching myself in team meetings or pinching myself in a huddle. I can't believe I'm leave, living this out. I can't believe I'm playing for this guy and getting to learn from this guy. Biggest lesson I got from coach was adaptability. I saw that in my four years. I saw that especially when I left and the entire landscape of college basketball changed with the one and done uh, system coming in. And I, I saw that even as a fan before I, I got there. Coach does not have a system. There's no system at Duke. Coach figures out who his best players are, his best talent. He develops those players. He puts confidence in those players. And everybody else gets to ride on that bus. He talks about being on Shane Battier's bus, Jay Williams' bus, Grant Hill's bus. Um, he's had some great players. And that's, that, that relationship with Coach has been a big driving factor. So, that, you know, just... Always being able to adapt to changing environments was a huge lesson I learned from him. I, I use that a ton in my NBA career. Look, you can be on, I played for the Clippers for four years. My role changed a little bit year to year. The locker room changes year to year. The coaching staff changes year to year. I played seven years in Orlando. My roles were all over the place. And so I had to constantly adapt to every team that I was on. And at the end of my career, moving around year to year, when you get older, you're not signing long-term deals anymore. So being able to adapt to all those changing environments was, was huge for me. And I, look, you mentioned this earlier, but I do think adaptability, resiliency, they go hand in hand. Um, look, you, you, you talk about the changing locker rooms. Um, this is something that's, that's very different. You know, JJ Redick, the four-year player at Duke, maybe doesn't happen in 2021, 22, uh, the way it happened for you, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, the, in the NBA, you know, I grew up personally a Knicks fan where I got Patrick Ewing, basically his, his the better part of his whole professional career. Those teams stayed together. They would have rivalries against the Bulls and the Heat. 
and the same cast of characters would come back time and time again. And now it feels very different. Um, yeah. You know, like, like, you know, two years here, two years there, um, you know, for different guys. Talk a little bit about what's behind that, this idea of a player power, a player empowerment era. Um, you know, players can not go to a Sports Illustrated uh, writer and have a big profile piece put out. They go directly to their fans. Talk about the intersection of these different things in the way that that the locker rooms change what feels like more frequently than was the case than, you know, maybe when you and I grew up. Sure. I have I have some theories on this, actually. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, there's there's a there's a few factors here. So, first of all, uh, for any player, but but especially for high level players, not just star players, but uh, high level role players, starters our contracts are shorter. There was a CBA in 2005 with our union and the NBA. Used to be, prior to that, you could sign a seven-year deal with your incumbent team or a six-year deal with another team. They shortened that to six and five. A lockout happened in 2011. I was a part of that. They shortened the deals again, five with your incumbent team, four if you're signing with somewhere else. So contracts are shorter. Naturally, you're going to have more player movement. Second part of that is player empowerment, for sure. Guys have figured out, let, let me get my check, especially with restricted free agency, um, you know, being the, the essential factor after your rookie contract. They'll sign the rookie extension. They'll get their money. Let me worry about getting the place or the team that I want to be later on. Um, the player empowerment ha era happened in my generation, and the biggest driver of that was LeBron James. His decision to go to Miami was a watershed moment for professional athletes. It really was. Um, third part of this is social media, for sure. So the, the, the fans, the media, the discourse, the narrative that occurs on social media, on a 24-7 news cycle, like First Take, like any show on ESPN or Fox News, um, it puts more pressure on the players. So players are naturally going to align themselves with other great players because we live in this rings culture where unless you're a first team all NBA guy and a uh, win a championship, win a ring for your team, there's just constant animosity, constant negativity towards you on social media. And I think that's been a driving force of this player movement era. The last part of this, and I firmly believe this, is the new generation of owners. A lot of them are private equity guys. And it's a different mindset than some of the owners uh, that, that, you know, own teams in the 90s. I mean, look, one of those owners was you know, there for 40 years. I think of I played for an owner with the Milwaukee Bucks that was there for over 25 years. And there's this new generation of owners. They want things quicker. Um, I played in Philly. And if you look at the process and even post-process, when they got the star players and they got good role players, there's been so much player turnover there looking for that one specific result. So I think we've devalued continuity in our sport. And when we talk about leadership, when we talk about um, sustained success, that's tough to do when your rosters are continuing to turn over. And so you need to be able to develop a certain level of trust, a certain level of chemistry. You need the right people in the locker room. You need the right people in the huddle, speaking truth. Uh, and and that 
has really not happened over the last five to 10 years. Yeah, one of the other interesting things that's happened over this period, which really you know encompasses your career since in the 2000s and, and, and now, is I think players are also behaving differently in the business world. Um, you know, you you started your own production company. You have uh, a very successful podcast, The Old Man the Three. You started, I believe, and had the only going um, commentary inside the bubble. You know, you you've been very forward thinking. You know, going back years past on on some articles you've written or working with Bill Simmons or others on doing interesting things in in a business mind in a business mind. But you hear stories every day of athletes investing in venture capital and tech and this and that ESPN famously made a documentary called broke, you know, about all the athletes who had, who had eight, nine figures and, 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 and found ways to, to spend it and lose it all. I find this generation of athletes is, is much more focused on, on business and wealth preservation and, and building brand and, and, and using their, their position in a very different way. You know, as someone who's, kind of pushing forward in the business world now, now retired officially, that's more what you're going to be spending your time on going forward. How, how do you think about that? What's been the culture change amongst athletes to really pursue those things? Some of it is access. It's access to information, um, it's access to better financial planning. It's access to better advice. It's access to deals. Uh, Iguodala and the Golden State Warriors uh, dynasty coinciding with this surge in uh, VC tech money uh, has been a big driving force in that. And we have a very competitive environment in the NBA. We compete about everything. Uh, what shoes do you have on? What sneakers do you have on? What car do you drive? Then it was watches. Uh, then it was wine. Now it's uh, what deals are you seeing? I mean, I literally have these conversations <laughs> with my with my peers all the time. And Again, I, 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 I do think there was some good that came of uh, that movie uh, Going Broke. It was eye-opening for a lot of players. And I also think players now make 5X what some of those guys make. I mean, Luka Doncic, if he signs his second max deal with the Mavericks, uh, his super max extension in a few years, will be under 30 years old with over $500 million in guaranteed contracts. Um, that's unheard. Michael Jordan made $90 million in his playing career from the NBA. So this the, the new, the new TV, TV deal that happened in 2016, raising the salary cap, raising the amount of money that owners had to spend on player players uh, has, been a, has been a boon for this generation of players. And, and um, you know, I, I, it's going to be, for somebody making $500 million in their NBA career or $300 million, it's going to be hard to spend all of that. It just is. And I, I sense and have seen that guys are much more financial savvy than they were 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. You also mentioned a lot of the new ownership in the NBA are also people that come from that space. And so I'm sure that's. I guess the intersection point is healthy. Yeah. Access, right. The the world's about access in a lot of ways. Right. I've had, Um, I've had great conversations with a few of my owners Prior to me going to the Clippers, uh, team was sold to Steve Ballmer. And prior to that, I had uh, a few owners, uh, one in Orlando, one in Milwaukee, and, and of course, Donald Sterling. But prior to you know Steve Ballmer buying the Clippers, I had never really had a real conversation with any owner. 
And then I go to LA and, and I'm having dinner with Steve Ballmer two or three times a year. I'm, I'm sharing time with him after games. I'm getting to pick his brain. I spend time with uh, two of the biggest private equity guys in the world and David, David Blitzer and, and Josh Harris. I get to spend a few months with Mark Cuban and pick his brain and talk about deal flow, talk about crypto, all this, all this interesting stuff. So these owners now are much more, I, I've seen it, they're, they're more willing to sort of have a personal relationship with you and provide some level of mentorship. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely different media changing. Ownership used to be, you know, some person who sat maybe up in the high up in the suite. And now they're, uh, you know, I think Mark Cuban famously is, is someone who probably broke sure. a little bit of the seal on that. Um, so, you know, look, you mentioned a lot of uh, owners that are leaders, others. Let's talk about some of your teammates that that have a reputation for being leaders. I heard you recently tell a story about Chris Paul. He's someone that obviously had a phenomenal season last year and how and your affinity for him he's seen as a very prominent leader in the game um you know i i, I remember vividly him him carrying team usa down the stretch in one of the olympic games um you know to, to talk about you know, your experience with him because he's someone who gets a lot of prs being a wonderful leader and then give me someone that people don't know isn't profiled on tv by the by the tv shows you mentioned earlier as being a leader who's a sneaky really valuable leader in uh in, in, in locker rooms that you've, that you've had time with? Sure. What Chris is great at, and this is why I love playing with him as much or more than any other teammate I've ever had, is the accountability uh, aspect. So I knew every night that Chris was going to bring his best. So distill that down. There's a couple concepts, personal excellence, just bringing your best every day. I knew I was getting that from him. The other one is, and he's probably the best example I've come across in the NBA of this, is just competitive stamina. Stamina, Competitive stamina. The guy is willing to give whatever he has. He wants to win so bad. He wants to be the best so bad. He's willing to give whatever he has every single day, over and over, year after year. He rehabs when he has an injury. He attacks a rehab like he attacks a game. It's just constant. And so... When we think about accountability, a leader has to be accountable to self. And Chris is a shining example of that. Um, the, the guy I always think of when I get asked that question, someone who's a little under the radar, he's not as under the radar now because he just got a head coaching job. But Willie Green was one of the best leaders that I ever played with. He was so perfect in our locker room in Los Angeles. He's now the head coach of the New Orleans, New Orleans Pelicans. There was a transition period for me in my own leadership style in my seventh year, which was my last year in Orlando, and my eighth year, which was my first year with the Clippers. And when I, when I say transition, those two years, my seventh year, we were rebuilding in Orlando. We had traded Dwight Howard. They had fired Stan Van Gundy. I was now the elder statesman in the locker room. And so I had to be a voice. I, I'd always been talkative, but I had to be a voice. I had to be a, 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 I was in a position of leadership and I get to LA and it's a different locker room. It's, it's one of the most unique locker rooms I've been in. And what I learned that seventh year and what I learned from Willie was how you say something and when you say something is as important as what you say. So a great leader communicates. But a great leader also communicates at the right time and the right way. 
And that was a huge lesson for me, especially as I got later on in my career, when at times I was the de facto leader of the team. And, and so learning that those two years was huge for me. And I learned it from Willie. And, and he's, he's, to me, one of the best leaders I've ever seen in the NBA, but a guy that doesn't get a ton of credit because, uh, you know, he was a role player, but he had a long career. But he, had, he was a role player, but he, he, he's a great leader. Oh, that's really cool. And he's got uh, one of the best young talents in the league. So hopefully he can. Yes. Uh, uh, a, a fellow Duke, a fellow Dukey, uh, uh, as they say. All right, so I just want to spend you know one last minute on on, on your production company and your business and and, and what you're doing. I, I think you've done some unbelievably cool stuff with with so many different people. I, I recently liked your conversation with Travis Kelsey. It's nice to hear a oh, yeah. nice to hear a sharpshooter talking to a you know a, a barreling tight end. You know, <laughs> quite interesting, uh, quite interesting duo. But what are the types of messages? What are the things you're trying to do with that? That's obviously a big platform. You know, you have a lot of access, which is something that we. Uh, We've talked a little bit about here. You know, what what are some of the things you're trying to achieve um, with that platform as, as as you go into the next phase for you? I originally started podcasting about five and a half years ago in February of 2016. Uh, part of the reason I was doing that was I wanted to sort of control the narrative. And when you have a platform, and at the time it was with Yahoo, you have a platform to speak every week to react in real time to what's happening in the NBA. Um, it allowed me to control a little bit of my own narrative, a little bit of the Clippers narrative, a little bit of the narrative surrounding professional athletes. Um, the other driving force at the time was intellectual curiosity. And so I knew when I started a podcast five and a half years ago that I wasn't just going to talk about basketball. I wasn't just going to talk about the NBA. So some of the cool things that we've done is we, we've had conversations with people like Stacey Abrams, uh, David Solomon, Bob Iger, I get to speak to other athletes like Travis Kelsey and Colin Morikawa. Sometimes you find these commonalities, these really cool commonalities about team building and about leadership. We, we did an entire leadership series uh, last year um, with a number of individuals, including Bob, um, also David Rubenstein, um, Latoya Cantrell, the, the mayor of New Orleans, uh, Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative. I learn as much <laughs> in these conversations uh, as any listener would learn, um, the, these are people that fascinate me. And so getting the chance to to talk to a number of people that I admire and, and have looked up to has been really rewarding. And what has transpired over the last five and a half years, which I didn't initially set out to do, but I, I all of a sudden built a skill set that I didn't even know I had uh, and didn't even know that I could develop. And so that's been a really that's been a really fun thing for me is becoming an interviewer. I was naturally in introverted as a kid, as a teenager, when I was a Duke, when I first got the NBA, um, partially because I, I married an extroverted person and my wife, but also because of this podcast, I've, I've developed a whole new skill set that I, I wasn't even aware that I had. <laughs> Very cool. Um, now, speaking of uh, of your wife, how are some of the experiences, locker room, all these access to leaders and other things you had, how does that make you a better parent? How does that make you better in the home? I find, you know, look, uh, you're on the road a, a ton, you know, by definition. Um, you know, I used to travel upwards of 80 business days a year. Um, you, you feel somewhat stress when you come home. Maybe you have a bad game. You have the joy of a 
good game, but you come home at one in the morning and no one's awake for them to to, to share in those moments with you. To talk a little bit about you know how this all translates at home. You know, we talk a lot in our profession about work life balance. I, I God knows what that looks like for a professional athlete. Um, who, who, who's who keeps the schedule you have in the hours? You know, what does that mean? What did that mean for you um, when you were playing, especially in the last few years? You know, you were in a couple different cities and these things. You know, talk a little bit about how that translated to to to, to make you a better a person at home. Well. One of the best leaders that I've ever been around and certainly the best man that I've ever known is my father. And he always took on the role of the leader in our household. And so when I started having children, my wife is absolutely a leader as well. I knew that I had to be a leader of my household and there's certain responsibilities that come with that. Of course, one of the great lessons I learned from my father was sacrifice. And he was always present and yet somehow always working. He was doing everything he could to provide for our family, but when he was home, he was there. And I try to do that with my own children. Now, when we talk about sacrifice, uh, being away from your family for days, weeks at a time, and in my case, in the last season of my career, eight months, I was away from them. Um, That's a little bit extreme. Uh, but even to this, to the sense of, uh, you know, summer off season, my kids are not in school. I'm, I, you know, as a player, I was still in the gym three or four hours a day. I was time away from them. So that was a sacrifice on my own part. I, I, I get a butcher the quote, but there's a, there's a great, great quote about selfishness and selfishness can be a good thing when selfishness is to provide for the people that you love the most. And I had to do that at times. Because there was a lot of times I didn't want to be in a hotel room in Cleveland in February. And I wanted to be home with my children and dropping them off at school. But I knew in the long term that that selfishness and that sort of sacrifice was what was necessary. I go back to a very simple parenting sort of uh, philosophy. It's like, what do you want? What do you want out of your kids? I want two very simple. And how I live my life, hopefully my kids will learn these two simple things. I want them to feel loved, and I want them to love other people. And by other people, I mean other people, everybody. And if they do that, I've succeeded as a parent. That's awesome. All right, JJ, well, we'll, we'll, we'll finish up on, a, I, I'd be remiss not to ask you a few basketball questions. You know, once again, congratulations on a, on a wonderful career, selfishly. Would have loved having you on the perimeter on some of those great Knicks teams that could have used a, uh, a guy yeah. like you knocking yeah. down some threes. <laughs> um, what what uh, arena did you play in that was your favorite? Just did the, the the adrenaline was a little bit better than the other arenas. Look, Cameron Indoor Stadium will always have a special place. I had so many great memories there. There's not a more intense crowd uh, in basketball than the Cameron Crazies, 100%. However, however, my favorite arena to play in is Madison Square Garden. The energy is different. The feeling is different. Um, My very first time playing in Madison Square Garden, I was 17 years old in the McDonald's All-American game. Uh, Carmelo Anthony was in that game. Chris Bosh, Amari Stoudemire, a bunch of great players in that game. And I I played well, and my team won, and I got MVP. And from that point, and the first time I'd been in the building and I'm like, 
it's electric, it's buzzing. And, and ever since then, whether it was playing there in college when I was at Duke or uh, even early on in my career as a, as a, as a rotational player getting 10, 12 minutes a game, it's just always been to me the most special place I've played. Uh, and I, I love being there for a big game. I agree. And it was nice to see those again. It was nice yeah, to see those again yes. this spring. Um, what player the night before the game and you saw you were matching up against them the next day, did you just go, oh man, he's going to, he owns me. I, I, there's <laughs> nothing, there's nothing I can do. Who, what, what player just, just when you woke up on game day, you're just like, oh no, not him again. You know, I never felt like anybody owned me. Cause I always felt like they had to chase me around too. Yeah. <laughs> Kobe was the most unstoppable player offensively that I had to guard. And it didn't matter if it was me or any other player. Kobe had such a deep bag of moves. His arsenal was so much different than everyone else's. A lot of guarding Kobe is he's either going to make it or miss it. There's really nothing I can do to stop him. But the guy that I always was, not, not fearful. The guy that I respected and knew I had to bring my A game against was Dwayne Wade. Uh, D Wade was, to me, the hardest player that I had to guard in my career. He did so many things well. His athleticism, his strength, his agility, his intelligence. Uh, there was a study a few years ago about D Wade's cutting. He's literally probably the most elite cutter that I ever played against. Um, and so th- he he would be the guy that probably gave me the biggest headache the night before a game, thinking about having a matchup with him. And on the other end of the spectrum, when you saw someone on the on the schedule, did you just smile? Because you're like, I always, I always, I always put up, I always, I always make it in those games. Was there a team or a, or a player that you always had a smile on when you saw that they were the next game on the schedule? Yeah, all my former teams. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very funny. Um, now, anyone who listens to you recently knows you like to um, put a little white sphere on a little plastic tee and hit it as far and as straight as you can. What what one golf course that you've not played yet is on your? I need to get there list now that you're now that you're in the retired uh, uh, world. I'm going to Paso Tiempo, Pebble Beach, Cypress Point, uh, which is Baton Pine Valley, or sort of number one, number two courses in the country, and Spyglass Hill. So I'll knock off a, a couple bucket list items on this. Yeah, just a few in one week. Yes. The course that I want to play the most is a course called Sand Hills, which is in Mullen, Nebraska. It's in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska. It's generally considered a top 10 course in the United States. It's um, a core in Crenshaw design. They built it sometime in the mid-90s, I believe. And they didn't really build the course. They discovered 18 holes on this barren uh, or this barren um, sand hill deposit uh, over you know millennia, and it just I watched this video. The Gulf Digest has this video. Every hole at every hole at Pebble Beach, every hole at Cypress, they have one every hole at Sand Hills, and I've watched that video twenty times, and that's the course for me that I just cannot wait to play someday. All right, well I hope you get out there yeah. um, with some of your time. And then, and lastly, I'm not going to ask you to pick because I'm sure you have a lot of friends, but, but name a couple players that are poised to, you know, for the world to notice, uh, in a big way, uh, that are kind of going to be some of the next generation guys that you think are going to have a little, a little breakout, uh, here in, uh, 21, 22. Yeah. I mean, I would say Tyrese Halliburton from the Sacramento Kings, 
He was third in the rookie of the year voting. You could argue he maybe should have been a little bit higher in that. But I think he's going to have a great second season. Um, I know how hard he works and I know how how smart he is. And, you know, the skill and, and the mind with him are going to continue to develop. He's going to be an all-star in this league. I, I think he's going to have a big jump in his second year. Um, and then I got to give some love to Zion. Uh, you know, I, I, assuming he's healthy, I think Zion's going to go to an all NBA level this year. And the Pelicans have a real chance to, to make the playoffs. And if, if that's the case, I think he'll be an all NBA player this year. JJ Redick, um, 11th pick in the 2006 draft. National Player of the Year at Duke, sharpshooter extraordinaire. Thank you very much for joining us on BNY Mellon Perspectives. All the congratulations to you on a wonderful 15-year career, including 13 consecutive playoff appearances. And uh, enjoy the time with your family. Enjoy the time strolling up and down the hills out on the West Coast. And we greatly appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you again, Jason. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey everyone, Garrett here again. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, and if you're willing, leave a review or rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, bnymelon.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the next episode.